Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in and who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, Jamie Flam. Why, hello, and welcome to Gatekeeper. It's a podcast. I love doing it so much. That sounded facetious, but it wasn't. I genuinely love doing this podcast. It's an opportunity to talk to people that fascinate me, to learn from them, and to hopefully impart some sort of knowledge or, I don't know, some nugget that will help inspire you as well. And what an episode we have for you today. Another recorded in New York City just a couple weeks ago. Uh, with Roy Wood Jr., who you know from The Daily Show, which is a show that comes on, um, I forget how often it comes on. Mm, I promised the producer I wouldn't uh, jump ship, wouldn't bail. I would just trek through whatever happened. And so uh, at my instinct of, of bailing after making a dumb Daily Show joke, I'm I'm still in it. And I think he knows that the silence is, doesn't bode well for me, not saying let's stop and start over but i'm going to stick with this because this is real life you don't want some prepared something that i wrote you want to hear what i'd sound like in real life this is authenticity this is it this is connection you're relating to this right now you are relating to this right now i am you you are me this is a mirror is podcasting a mirror yes you can quote me on that and when that becomes a big quote one day, podcasting is a mirror, it will be said, it will be attributed to me. God, I mean, I'm sticking with it. So anyway, I was in New York. I interviewed people. Roy Wood Jr., Daily Show. He's great. I think this is one of the more inspiring episodes of an already long list of inspiring episodes of Gatekeeper. But he is so well-adjusted. Um, He's got the perfect outlook, and I think you're going to be really inspired about his path. And and so we recorded the Bleach Report. The Bleach Report, while I was waiting for him to finish up a voiceover recording thing, they have quite the amazing kitchen. There was, I've never seen this before in this kind of place, but a trail mix, a trail mix bar, like six types of trail mix in little things, and you can scoop at your leisure. Um, and then all these other snacks, there's a video game console to play. So now you have a little inside scoop on Bleacher Report. Anyway, what did I do last night? Last night I went to a book signing reading at the last bookstore, downtown Los Angeles. The last bookstore is fucking beautiful. And people have been talking about it for years. It's this great place. They're like, Jamie, you got to see the last bookstore. Um, and of course, it's, it's like at least 10 miles away from where I live. I'm not going to go to this place, even though it sounds great. But I went for Rob Bell, who's a former guest of Gatekeeper. He released a new book about the Bible and uh, his unique takes on it. And by the way, check out Rob Bell episode of this podcast. You're going to love it. 
He did a speaking engagement to promote his book and a book signing, and it was packed. Fucking the last bookstore is full of so many nooks. It's enchanting as hell. If you come to Los Angeles, you got to check it out. I think it's the best bookstore in the world. And I've been to Powell's in fucking Borland. Why am I cussing all of a sudden? Rob was super inspiring. The store was super inspiring. And then Andrew and I went on a walk through downtown Los Angeles and ended up at Clifton's Cafeteria. Clifton's is historic. It's been there since, well, let's just say the 30s or 40s. Uh, cafeteria establishment, as is in the name. Uh, they had like a, we'll feed everyone policy. So even if you had no money, they would give it to you. I don't think that policy is still in place, FYI, to all my homeless listeners. That sounds like I'm ma- like making fun of homeless people. And I, God knows they're, they have enough on their plate. They don't need a podcast about the industry taking them down a notch. No punching down on the gatekeeper. Anyway, Clifton's Cafeteria, magical as well. Like when coming out of the last bookstore, you're like, there could be nothing more magical and enchanting than that. But then you go into Clifton's and it's kind of like my dream scenario. It's like a national park theme mixed with 1930s speakeasy mixed with the Madonna Inn mixed with natural history museum. Just perfect. Why am I sharing all this with you? Because I'm back in LA after this trip to New York and I talked about in the last episode, being in New York is so inspiring and going out and doing all these things and just getting out in a way and what that did for me and my mindset. And it was a a, a reminder that Los Angeles is pretty cool too. (laughs) There's inspiration to be found here as well. And so many places to be explored and how I often get stuck, you know, in my own neighborhood, my own comfort zones we've talked about before. Uh, but just leaving the house, leaving your apartment, wherever you live and exploring the city you live in is necessary. And I can be as cynical as the next guy or gal. It's hard not to be sometimes, especially in a city that's all about success and following your dreams and these dreams aren't (laughs) always going the way you want. But to be out and to be inspired and see the people and the places that are doing it right, to be in these magical places that were at one point just a vision in someone's head that they made happen is a beautiful reminder that we all have that same capacity to, to make those things in the world. So open up your map, your Thomas guide, and no matter where you are, seek out some cool things to do in your city. And go out and support the people you know that are doing things and be inspired what they're up to. Because of course you should. You dummy. You stupid, stupid dummy. You're an idiot sitting at home doing nothing. You fucking idiot. Jamie, are you talking about no, yourself no. again? No, that was that was this guy from college or he just doesn't get it. <laughs> but why don't we just get on with the show? Good call. Anyway, Roy Wood Jr. Enjoy. Gatekeeper. Testing, 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 testing. Do you know what time it is? I guess I can go first. Uh, three seventeen. All right. We'll just 
Welcome to Gatekeeper. I am in a conference room at Bleacher Report. I didn't expect I would be at Bleacher Report. To be honest, I know... You never know where life will take you. And life took me upstairs where I'm with Roy Wood Jr. Hello. From The Daily Show, from stand-up, from, from life. Yeah, man. I worked hard as a comedian, and now I get to do a couple TV shows here and there and did some stuff with Bleacher Report. You were nearby. I figured this would make the most sense of a place. I mean, it's either here or the streets of New York, and you just hear horns and homeless people in the background the entire time. I figured you wouldn't want that on your podcast. I mean, it's it would create an authentic you know, experience. I thought about going back to my house. I live close by, but I have a one-year-old, so I don't know what kind of mood he's in. And then it'll this shit will sound like a childcare podcast. Well, so, which sometimes it is. <laughs> I mean, some of these comics you got to hold their hand. Not a professional that's like you. Not even a lie that you just said. <laughs> well, that's sometimes the role of of a booker or a gatekeeper. A lot of comedians need a hug. But you yeah. seem pretty well adjusted. Yeah, I you know I feel like. I don't know. I've just never felt entitled to anything. And then I also, I think for me working in radio and watching how like in radio, you like people get fired like that. Like, and on a Friday at the end of your shift, you get called into a room and they send you home. Or sometimes you get a call at the crib and they say, don't come to work today. Like, and I've seen people that I've respected in that world, have everything taken away from them for whatever bureaucratic reason it might be. It's not always the jock's fault, but this sense that you are safe and this sense that everything that is will always be is a lie. And anybody dumb enough to behave and carry themselves professionally in a way that suggests that everything that they've been blessed with will never leave their presence is a fucking moron. And I just, I don't know. I just operate from a place of this could all be taken from me tomorrow. So what can I take advantage of today? What connects can I make? Who can I be nice to? And, you know, the the, the biggest lesson I've learned over the course of my career is the importance of networking and just talking and collaborating with other comedians and the importance of being nice. I, I can't tell you how much stuff I've booked just because I was fucking nice. I, you, if two people are equally funny and there's one slot up for grabs, the nicer person's going to get it. I think we're done. And this is all, all this go. podcast is to get to Life that advice, point. motherfucker. There you go. Knocked it out the park. Like you just, you can't, you can't be mean to people, man. My fuck is leapfrog all the time in this game. That That's the thing that's interesting about comedy is that comedy is the only job where you can go from being on the bench to use a sports analogy and Bleacher Report, you can go from being on the bench to being a starter to being the Super Bowl MVP to being back on the bench to back being a starter again. And somewhere on that journey up and down and back up again, it's better. You're just, you're just better off if you're nice and cordial to people. And I, you know, I, I talk, the thing I always enjoy doing at comedy clubs on the last day of the week usually a Saturday night when you're getting paid after your week of shows. I talked to the club owners and who, who's give me a good, who was, who's been a dick since the last time I was here. Give me a good asshole story. And they always got one. 
They always got one. There's always somebody that came in, showed their ass, cussed at the waitress or did some other belligerent, stupid behavior. And you'd be surprised how few of those guys get put back or you look at them now and they're struggling to get work or get booked anywhere. And it's because you have no allies and you cannot exist in this business now without allies. And I think that's, we were talking earlier about like, what would be a good um, niche for you in podcasting, but maybe it's just breaking out your recorder and recording those, <laughs> just uh, calling out the dicks. <laughs> yeah. I There's nothing gained from it though. Cause people will still pay money. Go, if, if, if the audience don't care, right? comedians care, but the audience, he's up st- on stage telling his jokes and doing his thing. For as long as he's not a dick to the crowd, he'll always be a champion to, you know, I use Carlos Mencia as a great example. You know, people try to act like they destroyed Mencia. Oh man, he took him down. He put up a video. He was stealing and we got him. Yay, we got him. Carlos Messia still selling out, selling tickets, man. His fans don't care. So to me, that's about the internal things, you know, the internal growth within this career and the connections that you make. Comedy is no different than any other job. It's very small. Somebody gave me the number. And I don't know if I believe this number, but it's got to be pretty close. In L.A., if we're just counting television shows that are on the air and the people who cast them, the networks that put them on, and the writers and the showrunners and the producers and the directors, one would argue that most of Los Angeles is run by about 200 people. That's what somebody, somebody even said as low as a hundred, but it's probably a new, I bet if you gave me 200 of the most powerful people in Hollywood, just on concentric circles, we could probably cover about 80% of media that's produced Mm -hmm. in the city. So it does not behoove you to show your ass (laughs) to any one of these persons because it's a very small circle. And I think that's something that a lot of people forget i mean hell there's people that book stuff just because they're likable and they know how to be relatable in the room with people and those people want to be in business with those types of comedians whereas because people will be like hey, that motherfucker ain't funny how he get a show it's probably more likable than you bro mm-hmm. and there's factors that the gatekeepers don't give a fuck about that we as comedians love to cling to I got, I got fucking, I've been ripping shows for 25 years. And I ain't never get, this little dumb motherfucker get it. Fuck him. That's why you're not going to get nothing, man, because you're angry. Mm-hmm. And anger, anger rarely begets opportunity. It can create your own, you can use the anger to create for yourself and use the rejection to create for yourself. But if you're just sitting around bitching, that ain't going to lead to nothing, man. You're wasting the day. You wasted the whole day being mad about some shit instead of figuring out what you could do to better yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, you said it earlier. It's it's um, when it comes down to two people and as someone that you know was booking a comedy club, I will go with the the nice, cool person 100% of the time because, the, you know, talent, you know, basically your, your talent level has to be insane 
definitely through the roof for anyone to put up with anyone that's a dick. Yeah, it's still not so an excuse I mean, to be a dick, but... Um, yeah, you have to be insanely talented and sell tickets. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to be both of those things before you can even think about being an asshole to anybody. And even then, you're still an asshole, man. And you're not happy. Yeah. That's why I don't even get mad. Like, people... We get mad at these comedians who get all upset and man, he was a he was a jerk to me. Let it go. He's angry. He's in a horrible place. It's sad, actually. Like a comic's a dick to me. It's, that's that's a you issue. I know I'm not doing anything that's crossing you or pissing you off. Just you're angry about something that has nothing to do with me. Do you think you got this all from your radio experience or? how you were raised or cause it really, I mean, it's refreshing you know, to talk to someone that's really, it's the entitlement thing is, is at the core of everything, I believe. So to, to, has that been instilled in you all along or? I mean, I was never really arrogant. I mean, I was never popular either. You know, I would love to do a personality dissection to see the number of comics that are kind of a little dickish and put that against their upbringing or if they have insecurities and they need these things to feel safe and feel okay. Uh, you know, I don't know what to tell you on that. I know that, you know, I got picked on a little bit as a kid. We moved a lot. I bounced around to a lot of different school districts in the same city. So I was always trying to fit in. So I was always trying to find common social denominators between me and strangers, white and black and, you know, you name it. And, you know, at school, like one year I was getting shipped out to a school, um, to a white middle school on the other side of town because they had like an accelerated gifted program and my mom wanted me in those classes. So I'm around white kids all day. But then on a school bus ride home, you ride the school bus that takes you back to your side of town. It's all fucking black kids. And then you get off the bus and you're fucking walking through the projects and you got to relate to the fucking disciples and the bloods. So there was always this, I never really felt comfortable in any one place. And that type of behavior as an adult, you had to have had some arrogant bravado. And, you know, I didn't really start reaching out or being even funny and coming out of my shell until college. Like that was probably the first time I even remotely became a semblance comedically of who I am now. Did you have um, aspirations for comedy at that point? Yeah, a little bit, but not the courage. So mm -hmm. that even the courage came a little later. I took some public relations classes and journalism classes, and they make you take public speaking. And public speaking, that was the first laughs I ever got in a presentation. Do you remember what you were presenting? I did an impromptu speech on the history of the toilet. <laughs> And I got an F. She gave me an F because she said that I tried to make a mockery of the assignment. And I didn't make a mockery of the assignment. You're the one who gave me toilet. You're the fucking teacher. You gave me toilet. And I did five, six minutes of research. And then I went up and started talking about the toilet. And it was just about how Sir Thomas Crapper or whatever. I think he was the inventor or whatever. But. He he's attached somehow to the history of the toilet, and that's why we call it the crapper mm -hmm. and taking a crap. Like 
those things all come from that dude. So I just kept saying the word crap anywhere I could in my speech, and she didn't like. It's a good comedy word. But I fucking crushed, bro. Oh my god, I fucking. That was your. Would you say that's your first? Uh, kill Yeah I'd almost call it an Open mic in a way That's really all Impromptu speaking is It's just open mic It's like a set list show Where they just give you mm-hmm. Topics to discuss So That I don't know I've always been in situations Where I've had to be humble Because I never fit in I didn't have any Semblance of bravado Until college And even then That was within my crew And that was with people I felt comfortable with Because, you know, high school shit, man, I spent two years trying to fit in. So by the time I fit in, like, I'm not going to fuck this up by trying to act like, well, you know, at that point, the social hierarchy is already set. I'm not a playboy. I'm not in a frat. I'm not a gangbanger. You know, I'm just Roy. Like, I was just funny enough, like, in in high school, when we played um, baseball, I grew up playing baseball. And so... We would. I didn't play often. I, I was on the team, mm-hmm. but I didn't get to play a lot. So I would ride the bench, and your job on the bench is to heckle the opposing batters. So that became the thing that I took pride in. And so I did that, and that kind of got me a lot of – I was ingrained socially, you know, with people or whatever after that, you know, it was, it was fun. Like, cause you, I mean, it's shit that would get you probably expelled. Now some of the shit we said, like, I won't even repeat it. Like we was, <laughs> I mean, just know that this is 1993 ideology in America where you can say a lot more shit to somebody in an open forum and not get called out for it. And, and, and before you become more educated and learn about bullying and verbal abuse and all of that stuff. But 1993 cross colors was sweeping yeah. the nation. So oh, we were yeah. all on the same page. Great times. <laughs> so we used to just heckle the shit out of the opposing team to the point where guys would strike out. I, we were getting laughs from <laughs> parents in the stands. Like it was, it was brutal, but I took pride in that shit. And I, I would, prepare i'd spend all day at school preparing heckles because i look at the schedule and know whether or not i'm playing we're playing hoover that's a top eight top tier team i'm not gonna get any playing time so let me prep these heckles let me ask you i mean is it like stand-up where some things fall flat and so you're kind of your workout teams yeah yeah and then there's stuff that's in unison that was one that really made me feel good um there was this god damn it was like now it would be considered fat shaming. It was for sure fat shaming. Where <laughs> this fucking dude from Pinson Valley, every time he took a step, we just made a fart sound. But imagine on the bench, 12 fucking people at the same time. Every time you take a step, when you running the basis, we're just making fart sounds. When you take a step <laughs> off a of first fart sound, that's like, like Michael Winslow in stereo. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. Oh my god! It was brutal. But it was still one of the greatest things. Like, I like that was the type of stuff that we did, and you know, and that felt really cool to like finally fit in because my freshman year I got cut from the baseball team. I didn't make the team. I didn't make junior varsity, and so I went to the head coach at the time. And I go, yo, you know, 
Y'all didn't pick me for junior varsity. That's fine. You know, it is what it is. But can I hang with the varsity team and just observe? I just wanted to be around the game. So I became the bat boy for the varsity team. And ain't no joy in that. Ain't no fucking... There's nothing sexy about that. There's nothing cool about being the ninth grade bat boy because you weren't good enough to be junior varsity. So I got teased a lot for that, but I needed to learn the game. If I didn't make the team, let me, I got to see what the fuck y'all doing. It was your internship. hundred percent. So y'all can tease me. That's fine. But I'm going to go to this varsity game and I'm going to watch these motherfuckers get better and figure out. So I learned a lot and knowing what I know now with that is the comparison comedy. Um, I learned as much through observation as I do practical application and trying to attempt something. So for me to just sit for an entire season and just watch the game of baseball and watch the strategy of it and calling pitches and steals and all of that. Like I really like from a coaching aspect, I learned a lot. And so to come from that to finally being the guy where people come up and go, Hey man, what are we going to say to number 14? <laughs> like just mm-hmm. that, that to go from that to that, there's just no place for me to all of a sudden become arrogant. It wouldn't have been, it would have been rejected. It would not have been an accepted behavior in my social structure. Do you think that, that, um, that boy experience then, you know, put the idea in the coach's head for the next season that, I'm assuming you you made it to the JV team. And then Correct. The Next year I made the JV team, but I was also better. I also saw where I wasn't good. And mm-hmm. there were days with the varsity where I would get to take batting practice. I'd get to take infield. So I still got to do things with the varsity team. So in that regard, that was, I don't know. It, it, it taught me a lot. Um, I also learned sales in those times because we sold – potato chips and the shitty brochure with all the bullshit overpriced peanut brittle mm-hmm. or whatever in it. Um, you have to sell that stuff to raise money for uniforms every year. So I wasn't even on the team and I was still a top seller of all of that shit. Like I, you name it, I could fucking sell it. So you start learning how to fucking will and deal in school and how to convince people to make, like it was, it's very much an internship. I never thought about it like that, but that's really what it was. Well, and that's the advice that a lot of people have given on this podcast and just in life is just whether you're in stand up, you know, like just find your people or find the, the world that you want to be in and do anything to get in. And people say that for production, like just, you know, start as a PA, then you're on set every day, you know, just watch. get in at the comedy club, observe, be, be a server or whatever it is. Yeah. And then immerse yourself in that culture, be nice and cool and, Good things will happen. Yeah. Well, God willing, they keep going. So in the meantime, I just have to fucking keep writing because I know some young black comic is coming for me. No. Not yet, motherfucker. You can't have it. No, this is your time. This is all yours. I mean. I hear you listening to this podcast right now, you young black motherfucker. (laughs) It's not your turn yet. Go back to open mic. (laughs) I hope that like in 10 years, someone like... (laughs) remembers that moment as the <laughs> and that's when I started going to work and writing every day to be better than Roy Wood Jr. cuz fuck it fuck that humble <laughs> motherfucker <laughs> I you know I I think the, I think you need a little bit of arrogance to do this job 
it's just arrogant in the sense of knowing when to use it. But just, you know, shining on a server or walking into a comedy club and kicking a comic off the show because you didn't like some joke they did or you don't like their style of comedy or just just firing people to the like I've been fired at the fucking club by headliners and it's like really man and you know I drove eight hours to come get these stupid ass two hundred dollars a week's worth of work for two hundred dollars I've been working a day job all day in this city just to make sure I got enough money to go home with and you're gonna fight it's like whatever dude like that I truly believe that stuff comes back to bite you the funny shit is when the people is when people treat you like shit and then years later they speak and they don't remember that's the thing that if you're gonna be an asshole have a good memory Mm -hmm. have a real good memory otherwise you're gonna fucking play yourself and you know I'm not I don't know. You know, I don't I don't know what to do with it because I'm not a vengeful person. You know, there's been people that have had mercy on me. I'm not going to sit here and act like I haven't gone through life and been a dick to somebody, you know, be it professionally or personally. But for me, the issue is when a bad person is now a good person, but there's literally no sense of atonement and understanding what they might have done to someone back in the past and how it affected them. And now because you're a good person or you found Jesus or whatever the fuck, I'm just supposed to roll with this new you. And I ain't with that. So I choose to keep my distance. Mm -hmm. So I run into people like that sometimes. And it's, it's really, really odd, man. It's really odd. There's like comedy bookers, you know, on the road. That's the problem with road bookers is that a lot of clubs, a lot of these independent comedy clubs, these B and C rooms, not so much improvs and funny bones, but a lot of these independent rooms want to act like they're the gatekeepers to everything that is your career. They are fucking lying to you, bro. Or sis, they're, they're straight up lying to you. Yeah, there's going to be a Comedy Central showcase here in four months, and I'm going to fucking put the guys that I like on. So now you got to kiss this dude ass for fucking four months in hopes that he puts you on. Or you can figure out a way to get the fuck to New York or to the coast or to even Chicago if you want to buy some time and grow faster and be better and circumvent so much of the bullshit. Um, There's a booker. And, this, and again, and this is just about letting things go and not and not being mad about it. But it's like, all right. So there was a booker that I used to work for um, down south, and like southern comedy, southern comedy is different from the coast on the come up when you first start. You have to travel every week to get opportunities for yourself. You cannot stay in Birmingham, Alabama, and just do open mic in Birmingham. Open mic is once a month. Atlanta is once a week. Memphis was once a month. Nashville was twice a month. Just for an open mic. Just for open mic. Mm -hmm. This is just five minutes. St. Pete had an open mic, and there was one in, there was a one-nighter in Sarasota that would put up two newbies 
every week. Shout out to Tim Wilkins and Gecko's Comedy Club, RIP Gecko's. Um, they would. So you drive to all these different cities and shit. So as you're coming up, you're doing better in each club, you get referrals, and eventually each club lets you MC, which is 10 to 15 minutes, and then you feature, which is 30 minutes, and then you headline, which is an hour. And there was there was this club, and he kept saying, he kept saying like, um, like there was one that just wouldn't book me as a headliner because they just refused to accept that I had forty five minutes of jokes. But the thing they used to always say with a lot of these clubs in the South is that I can't headline you because you don't have any credits. You don't have any credits. You got to get some credits, and that's what you're taught in the South in the Midwest is that you got to get credits. You got to get credits. Whereas on the coast, when you're coming up, you think you got to get credits, but what you're building concurrently is connections. And that shit is far more valuable than a fucking Comedy Central four minute appearance or a Gotham Comedy Live or a five minute late night set even. Now, and right. I'm talking now, 2017, back in 98 when I started, there was still a little juice on a Letterman credit. There was still a little juice if you did Leno. It could get you promoted. From feature to head. Like you might not get a sitcom off of it, but at the minimum, most clubs that are featuring you will close you. Mm-hmm. I have like this three-year stretch where I did like Comedy Central and Letterman and Montreal Comedy Festival, which is like the NFL Combine. It's like the Met Gala of comedy. It's mm-hmm. the only thing I can explain, the comedy, the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. Were you a new face? Correct. Mm-hmm. New Face, Letterman. I'd done Comedy Central. Um, I did BET's Comic View. Mm-hmm. Um, I had enough credits for you to fucking headline me. And the guy would not. And he goes, I don't know, man. Uh, tell you what, you're going to have to come in and feature a couple times. And if you do good in the feature slot, then we'll start closing you. So I take the dates. I take like four or five feature dates from this guy. But every other club that I'm working is offering me headline work, which pay like the pay is astronomically different to feature in middle America. Let's just say a Louisville, Kentucky or a Knoxville, Tennessee for, you know, four or five nights as a feature. You're probably getting five hundred dollars. You probably get a hundred bucks a night to headline that same situation. You're probably getting a thousand. Mm-hmm. So to, it starts at a thousand. So people offer me double. So I start canceling my feature weeks to take headline weeks. Cause I'm going where the growth is. I'm going, it wasn't just about the money. I get to do more time. I get to learn the craft. I'm better. These people respect me. So I, so I cancel uh, as the year goes on, I cancel every feature week. Eventually next year I call to get headline dates and the guy goes, I'm not going to book you for any headline dates because all you do is cancel on us anyway. And I said, I cancel because I was getting headline work. If you give me headline work, I won't cancel. Yeah, I don't know, man. Just email me, email me every month and maybe we can give you some fallout work. So if someone else cancels, maybe you'll. Right, right. And I don't know what happened, man. Something just fucking clicked, bro. And I don't even have a temper. But I just said, okay, cool. And that's the last time I've ever worked for this company. And that was 2006, I think. When I got the Daily Show, 
first people singing praises up and down their Facebook page was this comedy club. <laughs> so happy to see one of our guys finally get a chance and just this is so great and it's it's a victory for comics who put in the work. Really, bitch? Really? You know, like, so when I talk about how you treat people, you treat people so wrong so often that you don't even remember the last conversation we had and how wrong you were to me. Like, that stuff is just fascinating to me. So if you're going to be a dick, have a good memory. And stuff like that, and it was in that moment, now I understand why comedians ask for crazy shit when they go to certain clubs. It's some weird sense of get back for that time that the club didn't stand up for you when the headline fired you or the time that they never gave you your just due or the time you needed gas money just to get home and you're selling CDs after the show and the club decides they don't want to let you sell your merchandise. Like those things, when you finally get on, you go, yeah, I need five first class tickets and a helicopter (laughs) and three stripper blowjobs and all three strippers must be of racial origin from three different continents. Like you just Was make that the up best show of your life. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't carry that. Like you can't like if that book had called me tomorrow and wanted me to come do a week, I will go do the show. Cause it's not hate, but you just don't forget that. Yeah. You just don't. And I just remember, I just remember how I felt in those moments. And I just don't want anybody carrying that about me around, you know, at least not professionally. Well, there's, there's different types of gatekeepers too. I mean, and having talked to so many bookers. There's fake gatekeepers. Well, there, there's, Some of those clubs are fucking fake gatekeepers. I'm sorry. No, you're saying that. it's fake and also just power trippers. And Exactly. I've always come from a place and there's, and there's a lot of bookers like me that just want to help comedians and help foster careers and make it creative and fun and get comics paid. And then there's um, ones that just... You know, it's a business too, but they they want to hold that power over you, and there ain't no one club that can make or break your career. There is no one person who can make or break your career. There's two hundred people. Yeah, you can tell a person no. You can choose to not play ball with that person. You're not being disrespectful. You're just making a choice that works for you. You're tired of going to some club and the club owner keeps you feel like he's digging around. Stop going. I promise you, he don't care. Going on a rant about him, that's not going to change anything. Just find another way. Mm-hmm. Just find another path. You just have to redirect. You have to become water and flow around your fucking obstacles and blah, 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 blah. I was going to ask you, do you meditate? No. Video games. Video games and Sudoku and puzzles. Those are my three. Crossword puzzles? Uh, no, no, Jigsaw. Jigsaw. Yeah. So those are my three brainless activities. I can, if I'm doing any three of those things, I guarantee you I'm not thinking about anything else in that moment. And it's the only way I can clear my mind. It's the only three things that I've found that can clear my mind. And running, but running and athletics kind of make me irritable. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, it seems like, and there's a lot of comics and artists that find a way as we're sitting in Bleacher Report, like to combine their, their loves and their, what they were into in high school even. Um, but sports and comedy 
And now, of course, The Daily Show, which is not sports. Every now and then, they'll let me sneak. I, I can sneak as well. Like, mm-hmm. I went to Super Bowl Media Day. That was dope. And we did one. Um, we've been working on a story about uh, baseball that's coming up soon. So there's there's little pockets of it. Before I got The Daily Show, I was working heavy with ESPN and doing stuff with Sports Nation and his and hers. And I was really working hard at trying to figure out a way to marry sports and comedy because I still think that's something in the entertainment sphere that hasn't been done. It's very difficult to do creatively because of contracts with the leagues. And there's just a lot of sensitive motherfuckers involved in the world of sports that make it very difficult to do comedy. Sensitive jocks? Not just sensitive jocks, sensitive corporate people, sensitive sponsors, sensitive league officials. So like, find me the joke that doesn't piss off an athlete, an ad exec, the NBA official, or the network. Per- so it's it's very hard to, once I figure it out, I'm going to fucking be rich. But I feel like that type of stuff, comedically, that's what, like we're, we're in an era now, comedically, where you can find a niche. Part of the problem that comics had early on well, not a problem, but part of the issue was that as a network, let's just go back to when it was 30 cable channels and you had to be a comedian that appealed to everybody on all 30 channels. If you look at most of the comedians that blew up in the 80s until let's just say mid 90s when the comedy boom kind of subsided, those comedians, a lot of them were very universally loved. There was a lot of universal appeal that everybody could take from them. But now you have hella niche comics that work good and eat good doing just one particular style or appealing to one particular style. Like you take a Chris Hardwick who, who takes kind of this nerdist approach. I'm quirky. I like comic books. I like sci-fi. I'm going to tell you about my family. Like that type of, to be able to find, to be able to do a style of comedy that is so specific is a byproduct of the channels and the access because there's a place for everybody. There's a thing for everyone. Whatever type of person you are, you can be a comedian to that group, just that group if you want and make, plenty of money Mm -hmm. and be fucking comfortable. And I think that's a huge advantage that comedians have now that they definitely didn't have back in the day because there's 200 fucking channels, there's streaming sites and Netflix is slowly turning into a fucking comedic iceberg that's just like a comedic blob that's Mm -hmm. just eating up everything. So it's a lot of places to go and put your shit up. I think sports is, you can own that. I'm trying. I'm definitely trying. But, you know, I enjoy The Daily Show. I like what we do over there. And we'll talk about that for a minute. I mean, we'll that, talk about that's the internship. was a cool thing for you to yeah. get The Daily Show. Where did that, how did that come out of uh, nowhere? Had you been submitting for a while? Like, how does, you're doing stand up in LA yeah. and then Sullivan Sons? Sullivan Sons. So we do the sitcom on TBS. And, and then the so how does that gets canceled. Be, yeah. So I spent a year after that doing 
comedic segments for USA Today Sport. I did, I did comedic segments for online sports blogs, much like Bleacher Report. Um, I did some stuff for USA Today Sports, and periodically I was popping up on Sports Nation and Bomani Jones. I, I was doing a lot of different stuff all over the ESPN dial. Um, and during that time, I'm also doing radio call-ins. Like, I'm just... I'm back on the road. I'm doing comedy and get a call and find out that the Daily Show is looking. They're looking for new correspondents. And I sent in a tape of my stand up. I sent in a tape of my stand up. And then I also sent in some of the stuff that I've been doing in television in hopes to show, hey, I'm comfortable in front of a camera. I can read a prompter. I'm not a dumbass. <laughs> And so for the Daily Show audition, you have to write your own desk piece segment, you know, in a conversational form with Trevor or whatever. And so I wrote a segment and they liked it enough to call me in to screen test. And I went in and did a screen test and was done, hired. And that was it. And for me, it was it wasn't something I gave a lot of second thoughts to because I'd heard no enough. I was. The irony of it is that I was preparing to move to New York. I was done with L.A. Why? Because like, uh, I'd been there seven years, and I'd gotten some auditions or whatever, but the mistake I made when I moved to L.A. was that I kept working the road. My first two years in L.A., I was gone 20 days a month because for the nine years prior, you're taught, you got to get on the road and headline, you headline, and you get Letterman, and then you get Letterman. And so I'd worked for nine years to headline. So now I'm finally headlining. You're telling me now I'm not supposed to do that? I'm supposed to be in L.A. making friends at the comedy store? Fuck that shit. I'm going to Knoxville. It was the wrong move. It was totally the wrong move. And I should have spent way more time in that city. So... I feel like I wasn't making enough traction in LA. I'm like, I'm on the road. I'm on the road. I do this ESPN shit. And every now and then I go in for an audition that I don't get. I could do that from the East coast and get better at comedy concurrently. So I like in my head, I was like, all right, I'm not going to be one of these TV motherfuckers. I'm going to just be one of these dudes that bang out on the road. So let me go ahead and pull a Brian Regan and just become a beast just write and I can audition for the same shit that's auditioning in LA. I can audition for in New York. I can put it on tape and email it back. I'm closer to ESPN. So because the long game at the time was to try and break in with, which knowing now I would have got fucking laid off with the right, right. way with the, all the cuts that they have with the on air talent. But that was the play. Get to the East Coast, be closer to ESPN Studios, and be a stronger comedian because every night I can get on stage more often. Plus, mm -hmm. most of the people that I started with, they were in New York, not L.A. So I knew I would have an in to get on a couple of stages here and there. So I was like, why am I, why am I here in L.A.? What is, what is, what is this accomplishing going on stage three times a week when I'm off? I'd rather go up three times in a night. Talk about that difference. I mean, it's there's so many clubs and so many shows. What clubs are you performing at in New York? And talk about that process. Like when you're, I'm assuming when you moved to New York and you've been doing it for as long as you have, and now you're on the Daily Show, 
getting it at clubs is infinitely it's easier. Easy. It's very easy for me now. Um, you know, I also got lucky because I had a good relationship with the guys over at Gotham Comedy Club, Chris Mazzilli and everybody. So when I first started kind of tiptoeing in New York to the, the whole time I'm in L.A., I'm still coming to New York two to three times a year just to, quote unquote, check in, mm-hmm. be around, do shows for a week, sometimes at a loss. But it just it just felt like a sensible investment of time and money just to come here and do shows. Um, but you know, a lot of comedians, you got to show up, you got to do the open mic, you got to do the new talent night and then they graduate you from that to an MC. And then if they like you as an MC and word gets around that you're emceeing and doing well here, somebody else will give you a voucher at another club. Um, the daily show eats up a lot of my time. So I don't get to do a whole, whole lot. But when I am out in New York, I do the comedy cellar. I'm blessed enough to be passed there. I do Gotham and I do the stand. Those are kind of, those are my three nucleus mainstream clubs. And then from that, uh, every now and then I'll do New York comedy club when I have the time. And then I just do all the independent and alternative comedy rooms in Brooklyn, because it's important that I have some balance mm-hmm. to what I'm doing or whatever, because how different is, is the, an audience at the cellar versus uh, like union, union. And it's hall. mainstream versus hippies, yep. but I need to do a joke that fits both crowds. Mm-hmm. You know, you do a sh- show for somebody that drinks Dunkin' coffee, <laughs> and then the next show is for someone who prefers a nice Colombian brew that is you know, cage-free coffee beans that weren't tortured. Like one of these people, but finding the joke that hits the same nerve in both parties without me having to change any part of the joke, that's the constant growth experiment. Then after I do all of that, now I got to take the joke uptown and tell it to black people and make sure that I'm not coming across too white and what I'm, how I'm talking about it. And just the the approach to the subject, Mm -hmm. there has to be a little bit of, I call it sprinkle some blackness and you got to season it and put some black in it. Like the, the $10 Colombian, uh, yeah, small yeah. batch artisanal <laughs> coffee. Yeah, like like that person. You just have to figure out a joke. For me, the the challenge that I enjoy is figuring out a joke that connects all three of those people, mm-hmm. and not just being the artisanal coffee comic, and not just being a mainstream guy, but just making sure that as best I can that my stuff can relate. And now you don't always succeed in that. You know, it's better. It's easier to just be who you are and let whoever comes to you come. But I just want to make sure that I'm not ignoring a part of the joke or the bit of the performance that could be enhanced by me putting myself in an uncomfortable position when the joke is new. Mm -hmm. So if I force myself to be in an uncomfortable position where I feel like the joke might not work, then I'm going to change something about it or I'm going to try to peek on a different word or change an inflection, change the delivery. And sometimes in those moments, the joke is better. And now I can take what I learned here and take it back to the other demographics and go, okay, is that work? And then once you have something that works across the board, now you have a fire joke. Mm-hmm. Do you record all your sets and listen to them? Not all, but when I'm working on stuff, there's definitely audio. Like right now, there's a 15 minute chunk that I'm working on. Like, But for me, 
when I'm performing, there's probably only 30% of the set that I really give a shit about. Mm -hmm. The rest of it is either tried and true or stuff that's so new. We're just going to put it out and see what sticks. And once I see what sticks, then you start building around that and figuring out how to connect the dots and make all the points that you want to make. Like I'm trying to work on a bit now about how difficult it is to be openly racist like in as a lifestyle choice openly racist and i got to break down the day in the life of a racist so i have a couple of beats of that that make sense and that i think can work but now comes the part where i have to sit and really mentally explore and that's when you pick up a video game or a puzzle clear your head and really then pick up the pen and pad and figure out what it is a racist would go through every day that's stressful and you know being openly racist is all of this then i'm going to take that and then you try and compare it to being openly gay or openly black and like, so who has the more stressful day of all of these different demos? So right now I'm only on the openly racist part of it, but there's like four or five other demos that I've got to kind of work my way down and see in it. And sometimes you brain shop a joke or workshop a joke. And then you get to the end and realize, all right, there's nothing here. And sometimes you have a bit where the whole front half works, but you don't have a dismount. So it just doesn't, you can't keep doing it because there's no ending part to the joke. And then two years from now, you'll have a bit and then you'll look back at an old bit that you had that you put in the freezer for a while and you go, ah, now it fits with this. You pull that shit out the freezer, thaw it out. You put it with the new joke. Now you got a fucking nine minute set. Let me, I mean, going back a minute, um, you said, um, you know, that clearing your head, which I would say is meditating, whether it's, you know, doing a Sudoku or Fair sitting enough. and clearing your head. But is that literally part of the process is, all right, I need to clear my head. I'm going to do one of these mindless activities and now I'm going to write. Correct. For me, if once it's time to really tighten the bolts on a joke, yeah. But that's not all the time. Like I probably only write three months at a time. Like for me, there's a creative high tide and low tide where for three months, usually for two or three months, just inexplicably at any given time, I'll go through a stretch where every day two or three new premises will pop in my head. A funny thought, a funny sentence, something new pops in my head every day. And I just harvest. I just harvest. I write Sounds it like down. Sounds like an autumn thing. Yeah. I Is scribble it, it. Yeah. <laughs> and I put that in my joke book. I hand write so that the stuff sticks to my head more. Um. And then one day it just stops. I can't explain it, but just one day it just stops. And during that stretch of time, that's when I cultivate all of the stuff that I harvested. All right, well, since I can't think of anything, let's try this joke, this joke, and this joke. And I slot them in, in between material that's already established. And as I go through the course of the next couple of months, I take out the funnier joke, the support beams, I call them mm -hmm. you, like your act is supported by tried and true material. And you slot in weaker new jokes in between as the weaker jokes grow, the weaker jokes transition to support beams. And then the process starts all over again. Usually, you know, anywhere from three to five months later, it's time for another two month harvest. And 
during the time where I'm harvesting, I'm not putting those ideas on stage. I'm working on developing the stuff that I already had from the last creative harvest or whatever, if that makes sense. Totally. That's just how my brain works. I don't know why, but I rarely can just come up with a bit out of the blue. Like now it's, it's either a funny punchline or a funny scenario, or there's a point I want to make. And then I have to backtrack from that point to figure out how to make it funny. And so, you know, like I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on a bit about, you know, religion and faith healers and how, and what I'm trying to do is connect the two in the sense of talking about how, how faith healers, like regardless of what you feel about religion, we have to agree that faith healers aren't real and then spitting stuff that supports that, that thesis statement. Right now, it's not a lot of jokes, but the premise, the basic, the end point is that faith healers are bad for the health insurance industry because they're fucking up copays. <laughs> if they're real, mm-hmm. you're, if someone walks on stage with cancer, that's a fucking, as far as the healthcare industry is concerned, that's like a $200,000. You basically just took $200,000 from a company. They would murder you like that. And that's just more of a point than a punchline right now. So that's what I have to navigate. figure out how to navigate, how to turn a point into a punchline and how to assign points to punchlines that I already have. So mm-hmm. creatively, that's kind of that's kind of the process. I mean, that's so cool. That you, I mean, that's a very definitive process. And I, obviously, it's taken years to get there. At what point were you like, all right, I have a harvest period? Yeah, I, I don't know when. I don't know when. Probably... I don't know, eight or nine years ago. I don't feel like I found my voice till I was almost 10 years in. I've been in it almost 20 years. I started in 98. And early on, it was just, oh, that's funny. Put that with that. And that joke, this is a funny joke and joke, joke. Whereas now I'm trying to weave material all together into, you know, I don't know if this analogy makes sense, but like you can have a comedy set that's one small blanket and it's a series of small blankets, but I'm trying to weave one large quilt. Yes. And that is difficult. When You're you the have... Betsy Ross of comedy. <laughs> <laughs> the black right. Betsy Ross of comedy. Creatively, I'm trying to weave a quilt, but there's always gaps and parts that like, that's where like, I feel like with my hour special, I kind of missed the mark because the first 40 minutes, I felt like segued perfectly. Each thing led into the next and it was just one flowing being. And then I started talking about something that's totally to the left of everything else that I talked about up until that point. That's when you brought your puppet out and you're doing your ventriloquism. (laughs) And it was a funny joke. But it did not sit with the rest of if it's a meal, it's a fucking pineapple sitting next to a bowl of chili. Like, what the fuck is this pineapple doing here? Like that tasty treat, but it doesn't go with chili. So there are a couple pineapples in my set and I got to work on that. So I'm working harder at that this year. But you can't dictate what you creatively come up with. So you just write all the material, you work all the jokes out and then you take a step back and see where you are and start putting the pieces together. And that's how I build 
at least that's how I'm going to build my next hour of comedy is do all the jokes, get them all polished, then sit and look at them literally like picking a team and just draft jokes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like going you, back you, to sports analogies. Yeah. And you and you come on too. And together, this is our hour. Can there be a bat boy in the set? <laughs> An intern joke. And any jokes that don't make the hour, like even right now with what I'm working on and what I'm touring with now, the strongest material is jokes that didn't make my last hour special. And those are the support beams for everything else. Mm-hmm. So from a performance standpoint, if I'm out and I'm doing a show, people still get a solid comedy show. And that still has to be part of the deal right. because people are still paying to see you. And in this digital day and age, they deserve a good show. God bless you. I, I could talk to you for another hour, but I am, have to go. Well, I have to go to see Colbert show. Your your old friend must be nice. It isn't that. What do you have to do now? Um, I'm going to go home and wake my kid up and torment him with with like reading. I read to him. He's one. He doesn't like it yet. What are you reading? Uh, just there's like these ABC books and like. A and then there's like four things I on love the page the that start with the A. Mm-hmm. You know, right? we're, we're up to D, which is like dog and dirt, and there's like all these other D items or whatever. So yeah, I'm gonna go home and be a dad for a couple hours. That's the ultimate D word right and there. And then play PlayStation. What do you play on PlayStation? Uh, right now, still Grand Theft Auto Five. That's still my game. I asked that question as if I knew about <laughs> PlayStation, but just not Call of Duty anymore. I'm done with that franchise. Another D. <laughs> well, I um, end every show saying, and I have to remind myself because I don't have it written down, but um, I work on your craft endlessly. Be a professional. Uh, be undeniable. And be cool as fuck always. I think you hit all those points. Make friends. Make friends. Make, make allies. You don't have to make friends. Just make allies. By being nice and cool. Yeah. Because you're going to find people that are better writers than you and people that are better performers than you. And they're all going to want the same thing. So team up. Awesome. Well, cool. Roy Wood Jr. You, and so um, Daily Show every week. Yeah. Daily Show. Every day. Google. Yeah. <laughs> and Roy Wood Jr. and Twitter, Instagram. Blah, 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 blah. All right. From New York City, this has been Gatekeeper. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com, at jamieflam on Twitter, at gatekeeperpod on Twitter, and Flammy Davis Jr. on Instagram. This episode was produced by Andrew Steven, and a very special thanks to Buddy Peace for the music at the top and end of this and all episodes.